Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Design Exec Club Spotlight. I'm Mark Bird, the founder of Design, and joining me is Amber Bonnie. Good day, Amber. Hello. Good day, Amber. Oh, it must be early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Now, Amber, you're uh, down on what we call the Surf Coast. I'm on the on Mornington Peninsula. I'm looking at a map here of the Indigenous nations that are that are around here, and it's fascinating because of that divide. You're in a very different Indigenous na- nation than, than than I was, and they have very different cultures. But we're also living this strange culture because both of us had a lot of context in Melbourne, and now we're actually down on the coast. How's the last 18 months been in uh, in having that hybrid life? Uh, look, there's been some really great uh, outcomes to COVID. One is just my children are very happy to have me more around. Um, it's lovely down on the surf coast, obviously a very privileged position to be in, um, to, you know, be able to go for a walk on the beach and uh, just be surrounded by, you know, beautiful uh, environment. But it has been challenging managing a business across two states that are now in lockdown. So we've got a, a small Sydney office as well. Of course, that's uh, now in lockdown. So I think the people management side of the business has been pretty challenging. Yeah, and I know one of the other um, exec club members, uh, Dylan Brady, talks about the the equity that he has for his clients in China, that what happens when you have a cup of tea or a tea ceremony with people is uh, there's a lot of connections that happen there. Zoom is wonderful, but it's not the same as pressing the flesh, is it? Uh, it's really different. I think that the opportunity that gets missed in Zoom is it becomes a very functional conversation. You're there, you get your task done, you hang up. That That's how it works. There's no pre-conversation really as you walk into the boardroom. There's no little chat after the meeting. And it's those little sort of three to five minute conversations post a meeting where the real nurturing of the relationships happen. So what we're finding is there is a little bit of disengagement because you become more of a functional supplier to get a project done as opposed to being able to to build those relationships and sort of investigate other opportunities becomes a bit tricky as well. Yeah. And uh, over the last couple of years, you've been the president of the Creative Women's Circle, and I believe that's coming to, that that year is coming to a close, or or has it ended? No, it hasn't ended. So our AGM is in September. It's been okay. two um, wonderful but very challenging years right. managing well, that role. Well, we had we had a, a project we were working on. We were bringing uh, Debbie uh, Debbie Millman Debbie was Millman. coming out to Australia, and it was the week when Melbourne went into its first lockdown. Debbie was seeing the horrific uh, toll that was happening in New York, and it was: is it going to be on? Is it going to be off? But what was interesting there was that was as you were trying to build up the momentum in that community. As I understand that the community has continued to grow in its strength, whereas we probably would have thought that because they weren't in real life events that it would have actually killed things. So I find that really interesting that you've seen the Credit Women's Circle has grown in a period yeah. that probably should have died. It should have died. I think one of the things that needs to happen in the Creative Women's Circle, and I imagine um, I'm a member of lots of other member-based organisations that are marketing services related, and I think where people are struggling is paid memberships are starting to become quite difficult to continue because 
there's so much content available now for nothing. You know, you can jump on anywhere. There's a lot of different individual channels of people pushing out content. Businesses have podcasts. The the access to information and personal growth is really significant. And so the challenge that we've had is the member audience is uh, really significant for Creative Women Circles, big member group across Australia. Um but memberships are actually declining. So the audience is big and the people attending when we do have events is growing. But I think the model uh, will need to shift. And that's something that we've started to plant the seed with. And I've been um, negotiating for the new president and um, we've secured that and we'll be announcing that very shortly, which is very exciting. Um, and that'll be the big future, really, I think, for Creative Women's Circle and for lots of other member-based organisations. Get it backed, get, it, get the support and the funding so that you can offer free membership and then it's much more about offering uh, value through events and connections. Yeah, and, and I think uh, we know that with the Design Exec Club, it's actually it's the capacity to be able to have particular content is important. And yep. so that you want to be able to curate that and say, well, there's a particular offering and you don't want to be the same as everyone else. You also need to make sure that you're valuing people's time and that you're giving them an, a value they can't get elsewhere, which is going to be the connections. Exactly. And sometimes part of that connections is also support connections as well as commercial connections. And you need to make sure that, that the community grows there because not everybody in the community that you network with is going to be somebody you do business with. It might be somebody that you're able to go share some dilemmas, get some insights, get some inspiration, or just know there's somebody you might be able to call if you need to have, have somebody with, get you back. So, you know, that's exactly. really important. Isn't it? I'm working on, a, on, a, on telling a story, a really complicated story that I've been working on for the last six months, and I think it's going to take me another six months, and it's about the idea of relevance and irrelevance. We did a spotlight with Michael Tan, the global head of design for um, IBM IX, and we were talking about if you've got exponential growth in relevance, you've also got exponential irrelevance happening at the same time. And I think that's one of the things that member, member organisations are really important is helping people to maintain their relevance in a market. Because as I'm developing the story, it's about planet design. And gravity is 10 times heavy on, on planet design. And so therefore your irrelevance happens much, much faster. You have to be in front of people. You have to be having conversations. In fact, you have to just have to be a leader. And if you can't be a leader in the creative women's circle or in the design exec club and have voice, you're probably going to disappear. Yeah, and part of the importance of that leadership, I think, is if you're a conscious leader, is knowing when to stop, knowing when to shift, knowing when to move forward, knowing when to call something when it's not working, um, and being able to look a few steps ahead and find that little space and say that that's where we're heading, even if the, the business or the industry isn't there. Now, that's given me a beautiful segue into, into a 10-year anniversary or 10-year birthday yeah. coming up uh, uh, for yourself. And and I'm interested there because 10 years ago, you set up your own shop. It had your name on the door. It did. But then, what was it, about five years ago, four or five years ago, you rebranded and you decided to change the structure. Help tell me the story about that because... I think that's really interesting. You obviously 10 years ago said, I want to change something. 
And then you realise you needed to change it again. And no doubt, being a branding expert, you'll realise you'll need to go change it somewhere down the track as well. Yeah, and we're going through that change now. Um, I think the insight for me, when I started 10 years ago, um, I was trading off the equity of my reputation. So it really made sense. I had left a business. I'd been there eight years. Um, it's a really um, amicable exit, and I'd, I'd learned a lot. And I'd been working with big clients on big projects and, and I had a profile in that industry. So it made sense that I would be trading off that reputation without making up a new name that knew, no, nobody knew. About three years into that process, I started to realise that the, that wasn't really going to be where the future was. And I met, um, who's now a partner in the business and our CEO, um, Fiona Curry and she helped me do some strategic planning. She's worked a lot in the media um, space and in the M&A space specifically. And we did some strategic long-term planning and, and it was there that she helped me realise that the sustainability of having my name on the door wasn't there. Um, and if I wanted to be able to exit the business at some stage, take on partners, um, the value was in getting my name off the door, starting a clean slate, and being able to use that opportunity to reposition the business, which is what I did. At that time, we were doing 100% really um, FMCG, but I had a, a background in corporate and in change management as well, and that was an, ent- an area that I was really interested in um, evolving my career towards. So still very much focused on brand, but brand across multiple sectors. Uh-huh. Um, so that that was that's the background. That's And then it took... Probably three years where we were running two businesses concurrently for tax reasons. Um, it was a very uh, challenge. It was a long play, basically. It was a long play. Well, and, and, you know, I think it's important to have a conversation there about that long play because I see some people who do what I might call the thunderclap, which is, you know, it's a, a particular day, change brand. It That is very disruptive. It, and we've done some rebranding over the years with uh, with Driven by Design. When we started, we were called Design 100. Yeah. For three years, I introduced a different brand, which was it was the Design 100, and then there was the Driven by Design strap line, and then we swapped the strap line for uh, swapped them around, and then eventually retired the other. It was you know the most seamless. But it didn't really matter. Well, no. And it sounds like that, that's what you were able to do as well. Unless you've got the weight of being an FMCG brand and you're going to have to put it on packaging and it has to all coordinate, service businesses can take a little bit more time in in reshaping that branding because you don't want to have customer shock either. No. I mean, thankfully, my expertise and experience in change management helped me develop a very clear strategy on how we were going to take our customers on that journey. Um, for staff, it was a no-brainer. The proposition for Edison um, with broader appeal, it was, it was, you know, it was all self-funded, but I'd worked really hard over those four years, um, made some good money and was able to invest that back into building a new team uh, with a really diverse background as opposed to a bunch of packaging specialists. So from a staff attraction, it was an easy story. From a customer, it was just taking them on that journey so they could understand what the benefits were. And, of course, I was still going to be there, but I didn't need my name on the door. And it was never really my ambition to to build brand um, Amber. It was it was always to build something that, 
that was really a community of, of really talented people. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really tough thing where, and I love the way that you framed it in. You're going to have your reputation, whether it's going to be directly linked with your name. So that makes sense. But there is a point where people need to say, if I'm going to grow and I've got a future and I've got an exit and I'm and I'm evolving, I'm likely to have to go ring up somebody like yourself and say, how can I rebrand? How do I go through that transition? Because the M and A process isn't fantastic if it's got your name on the door. Because what they're buying is you; they're not buying a business. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well. The other part that I'm, I'm fascinated about you, and there's, there aren't as, I don't find in the world of design, I bump into many, as many people who have the qualities that you do, which is just this constant, we need to keep getting gender equity. We need to go and elevate females who are in the creative industry up, and we also need to make sure that there's recognition of the role of female leaders there. And that's astounding. What drives you there? Um, well, I'm a, I'm a staunch feminist, so that helps, I think. Uh, look, I came from a background of five, um, daughters in a family. I'm one of five girls. So growing up, it was a very female centric household and we were all really strong women. Um, interestingly enough, my mum is quite a conservative woman. I wouldn't call her a feminist at all. Um, she's English and, you know, she has a very traditional background, but, I think growing up, um, my dad was always very encouraging of us girls to just do whatever you want to do and do it well. And I just grew up knowing that um, I could do that. I never had a doubt. I always knew I was going to run my own business. My first job was with a woman um, called Heather Towns who ran a very successful agency in Melbourne. And she gave me some really great advice. She said, don't start your business until you understand business. So learn from other people gather everything that you can, get your sort of your arsenal together and then go and hit hard. And, you know, I know other people leave uni and they go out on their own and that's sort of their path. But for me, that really worked because I worked in some great organisations with some really intelligent people and I took all of those learnings and was able to then apply my own filter to it. And I work in the industry with really great women like Dr. Jane Conroy, really great inspiration for me. I met her as she was doing her PhD in interviewing women in design. Julie Ockerby, I met through um, the design execs and she's been a really great, um, you know, personal confidant of mine over the last sort of six months. I think I just, uh, it's just really important. Women in business is a minority and it needs to be considered that way. Um, and until it's not a minority, I'll continue to, to champion that cause. Mm. And, uh, you know, over the last six months, we've been doing a series of town halls, which have been building up a stack that, that has got to the point about the idea of talking about equity. Equity is so important, you know, and, and I think because we've now finished that series, basically the, the summary I've got is if you're – Below equity, let's call that modern, that's the modern poverty. Yeah. We, we know the economic benefits of lifting people out of poverty. Equity, we have to go and actually bring them in. It's a flaw. It's a, we should be saying this is the minimum position. We have to lift everybody up to that. Then they can work out how they can thrive. But when we started this conversation around equity, it was probably more about inequity. So it was what was missing. It's having that understanding that everybody has actually got that same starting point. Everybody is included. Everybody has an opportunity. 
And that isn't the case for a lot of women. A lot of women actually find that their voices aren't being heard. They're finding out that they're not being uh, given recognition. And particularly as, as I hear from women as they age, that they say that they feel like they become invisible. And that's, that's terrible because that's a type of you're leaving. You've had equity and now you're actually losing your equity there. So I think it's really important that we have champions to say, We've got to keep an eye on the equity that was gained, that it's maintained. And we actually also need to grow that there's more people who are in that group, which is what I think I've seen you doing with the Creative Women's Circle and uh, the FEM economy that's in there. Tell me a little bit about the FEM economy, because when I first saw it, I, I must have asked going, oh, what the hell is this? So I dug in and I read a bit about it. It's a very interesting group. Really interesting. Um, run by two women. I think they're based in Brisbane. Um they really are advocates for, um, I suppose, gender equity in business. So they support if you are more than 50% owned by women, you can become a member. Um, they work a lot. I think the, the key work that they do is actually with uh, industry and government where they're advocating for women to be more of a focus as part of the procurement process. So, for example, in government, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of work that, gets done in government around um, helping disadvantage or minority groups, but women have never been one of those groups. So they've been working a lot in the policy, working with policymakers to actually advocate that if you're a female-owned business, that that is considered part of a minority group um, and is given preference over a non um, a non-female-owned business. So that sort of work is absolutely critical because you're talking about long-term contracts, um, significant investment from government, um, you know, that gives people confidence that they can win these big procurement contracts that are exceptionally difficult to get across the line. And I can tell you as a business, um, I've been, you know, one of our core pieces of messaging on the front pad of our credentials is we are 100% female owned. That's the first thing that we say. And we're really proud of that. The men in the business are really proud of that. Everyone's proud of that. And, um, and we'll continue to do that, to raise the profile so that people are thinking about it. When they open that presentation, they're not just seeing a woman there. We're actually saying we are 100% female-owned and we're proud because it's it's not an industry norm. Hmm. Uh, yesterday we finished a government grant, um, and uh, it was interesting how clumsy the equity, uh, gender equity uh, position was in it, uh, that the, the premise that they started from was how you have to demonstrate how you will change during the period of this grant. It didn't have, there was no accommodation that you may have already had. Had. had, had right. Had, yeah. had, and, and so we, we found ourselves. They're partly, assuming the baseline is that you don't have any extra equity. And, and, and that was, that was the hardest part of the, of the grant to go right was, how do we actually say, well, we're not shitty, so we're not going to improve because we're not shitty. We're already good, yeah. And you go, so, so I think, you know, there's, it's a continual effort to make sure that we're getting that framing right because so often as, we've, as we're getting people going through various transitions, at what stage are you up to? Where do you fit? And, and, you know, wage theft is an interesting one, that wage theft in design practices is now illegal in the state of Victoria, and that there's a whole bunch of work that needs to be done. The first one is you have to agree that you're going to be compliant with the policy. 
The next one is you have to have actually put in, you know, changes to make sure that you will be compliant. The next one is to assess what you what you might have had as a historic wage theft. And the last one is that you've made the reparations. You know, then it's like, well, which stage of wage theft are you involved in? And if you're totally compliant and you've made the reparations, it might be that there was zero dollars, but you have to have gone through that process. Otherwise, you don't know for certain that you haven't done it. You're not, yeah. But there's a framework there. What I find is with a lot of equity issues, there there isn't a a framework that's agreed on so that people can say, at what stage are you up to? What I would have loved to have said from a gender lens perspective is where we've done all of the framework steps and we're our level four framework participant. There wasn't wasn't that grace and elegance in there. So it was, you're a male putting in a grant application, you must be biased. And yeah, I, and and, that, and that's hard. So Gross I think, assumption. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it is, but that, that's where by having conversations, we work out how to go and actually go to a better future, and we understand who's already transitioned and who needs to transition further in there. Now, both Edison and also Dramar Design are doing some changes for 2020 that have to go do with the. The for good side of things. You've got a design for good initiative that you've got coming up. It's yes. still, I think, embryonic. You may not have all of the ink printed about everything, old-fashioned term, but give us a bit of insight of what design for good is for you. Yeah, um, I suppose the, the background is we've been doing a lot of work in the background of the business. You know, we make significant cash donations every year. We take on pro bono projects every year. We are considerate of the type of partners that we work with and, um, you know, our, our culture and the way that we behave is really important that it adheres to the values of the business. Um, but there wasn't any framework around it. It was sort of just organic. And as the business grows and the people grow, we were finding we needed a bit more structure. Um, we put on our first general manager this year, which was very exciting. It took a lot of pressure off me. And one of his first projects is the B Corp certification, which we're going through currently. And as part of that B Corp process, um, we decided to put more rigor and framework around what is it that we really believe in as a business and how do we make sure that we're evaluating when people come to us to say, hey, can you do some work for us? Because we always get people asking to do work for free. Um, that we make sure that that there's a, a, I suppose a procedure in place that we can evaluate um, what is it they're trying to achieve and do they meet the, the metrics that we believe in. And that's where Design for Good came about. So we launched that internally. We've got some information on our website, but it really um, we were using, we wanted to use our anniversary coming up as an opportunity to go to, go to market. And the more I've talked about it, the more people are really interested and they're like, I'd love to come on board. And, you know, we have a lot of big corporate clients. We've sort of pitched it to them. They're like, this is awesome. And the benefit of doing more purpose-led work is not only does it align to our business, but I always joke that design is our superpower. And um, that's a real gift. And that superpower um, has enabled me personally to get out of some difficult personal situations um, you know, fleeing a, a violent um, marriage, that that superpower enabled me to put food on the table and build a really solid career. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, that don't have that gift. And so how can we use that gift to um, create positive change? And, and that's linked to our purpose, and that's what Design for Good is all about. Yeah, no, fantastic. And uh, um, um, just reflect, um, 
congratulations on getting out of a violent um, personal circumstance. No, Thank it's you. Totally unacceptable. Nobody should have to um, be involved with any form of violence or abuse. So well done for, for getting past that. But that gives, you, that gives you a reference, which is there can be a really crappy life or you can imagine a better future. And, and yeah. If, and, if, and, that's- and if you can imagine a better future and there are people who can help you to enable to, to get to that better future, that's such an, such an important thing that we go do. So the fact that you're saying, well, how do we keep going and doing that? We think that, you know, that, that's a fantastic pursuit. I think those framings are the most important things because I, I get lots of people who also ask us, can you contribute to what we're doing? But I'm going, but there's no framing that says what this, what good actually means. And, and I, I must say, I'm, I am absolutely intolerant of the design industry using the word good design. Why, why is such a low level? Where's excellence? Where's outstanding? Where's phenomenal change? Good just feels like a cop out. I mean, how do you even measure, um, good? It's yeah. very frustrating. I'm um, in the process of, of judging some awards and um, it it just – the framework that goes into some awards where there's no context to why the work is working, like how do you judge something when you don't understand the purpose? And so if you just have a short introduction to a piece of work with no background, with no where are they going to the future – all I'm looking at is just pictures, pretty pictures. Yes, they look great, but is that effective? Are they speaking to the right audience? Is it? How do you actually make that assessment on what's good? Yeah, and I think, and so one of the things that's really important for people like awards programs, and you know, we're not the only people in the world. Where we've got a large chunk that we do, but there's lots of other contemporaries. Is you need to upgrade your criteria for mm. what even gets shortlisted. What, what even gets accepted into the awards? What are you asking? What are the criteria that you're asking? If you're not yeah. asking the right questions, how do you expect someone to judge whether that's effective or not effective? And we have two passes that we'll give people who are submitted into the Dreamby Design Awards to correct it. And, you know, it's fantastic. There's the framework of the Sustainable Development Goals. You can say, well, tell me which one of the sustainable development goals are you applying to. There's also national privacy. So if it's a digital project, are you complying to the uh, national privacy framework? Or are you complying to the sustainability frameworks that come through the SDG? There's 17 SDGs. We should be able to work out some of them. But yeah. there is one, so there's one, and this might be a sidebar we have to go do elsewhere, but there's one thing that fascinates me. You're in the packaging world. I see the company whose cereal that I have or muesli that I have in the morning has every logo on it under the sun to get me to buy it, but they haven't got a logo. It just says dispose of responsibly. Well, sometimes they do, but it's it's in such a remote location um, that nobody, nobody sees it. Look, I think there's a big shift happening at the moment and and one of the benefits of the design for good program is actually about partnering with our corporate clients Uh so the big fmcg producers being one of them to help them communicate their change they have big sustainability initiatives they've got big you know cultural policies and 
um, equity-based initiatives, but they don't having them on a PowerPoint is very different to communicating them to the end user. So how do you take that? Just this is great on a PowerPoint, and we've done this big internal launch, and this is all fabulous. But what does that mean to the people actually buying the product? That's the work that we can do in saying, how do you take that consumer-centric brand skills mm-hmm. and actually have a purpose-led outcome that that helps people make um, good decisions? Yeah, and I think and I think there's an interesting thing. It's getting from the rhetoric of the planning session into me consuming their product and at the end of the life cycle, working out how do I do the right thing here so yeah. that that circular economy goal that they have, because most most boardrooms are now saying circular economy, what a great idea, we want to participate. But all the steps of the chain there are just so insidious that you have to get them all right. And there's a long journey to go. And the more that people are focused on a better future, more focused on doing the good thing, making good decisions, we're likely to get there. It'll just become a norm, won't it, really? But we're a good 10 years away from that, I think, with that, um, you know, working with big corporates, they they take a long time to make decisions. There's a lot of stakeholders. It's it's like moving the Titanic quickly. It doesn't doesn't happen. So, so there was a in architecture. There's a really interesting thing that a bunch of architects around about ten or fifteen years ago started to go do sustainability by stealth. So they were getting briefs from uh, from government or corporate clients that were saying they wanted a particular property built. And they weren't specifying sustainable elements in the building. But the architects on purpose made sure that they were putting in more sustainable materials, a more sustainable design than was being asked for in the brief. And this whole area of sustainability by stealth, it's just right now to go have books put out and say, well, actually, the building's a, 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 you know, a very high-ranking, well- or lead-standard building, not because the client asked for it, but because the architect did it. What do you think the role is for people who are the design professionals to actually put in some of that by stealth? Because if we wait 10 years, could we have actually got it done in five? Yeah, potentially. I think we have a responsibility really to be constantly um, encouraging our clients to do better and to do more. And also the opportunity to walk away if you're working with someone that doesn't. Um, and that's, Certainly something that I've done in my last 10 years. I have walked away from people. Um, I think that the best way to convince someone, it's hard to do something stealth in, especially if you're talking about packaging, that can be quite difficult because everything gets mandated uh, and signed off. The thing that I find most convincing is when you show people world-class examples mm-hmm. of big brands that are similar to theirs that have done it and then, you know, by virtue of um, inferiority complex, they realise, oh, well, this brand's done it in the US. We should be doing that too. So we're seen as progressive. So giving examples of, of other businesses, doesn't have to be in the same category, can be really helpful. Yeah. I want to go back a little step in our conversation. You were talking about the leadership platform that your father provided as far as giving you girls the the opportunity to imagine that there was a better future for you. You've got your own children. (laughs) What do you think the standards are that you're trying to raise for them so that their imagination of a better future? I know there's a neighbour here, a 13-year-old girl, and she was telling me she like it was such a depressed future she had. So her and her father 
and I, we sat down and we talked about, well, what a better future might be. How does she actually imagine brilliance in the future rather than land? Have you got an yeah. idea of how you do that for your kids? It's difficult. Um, all three children are um, completely different. So my son, who just turned 18, um, he has struggled a bit. He doesn't have, you know, he struggles from mental health issues. He has ADHD. Um, you know, he didn't fit into the normal mould, but he's exceptionally creative, very intelligent. Um, I'm trying to encourage him that he doesn't have to work a nine-to-five job in an office doing something boring because if he's not interested in something, he just won't do it. Like if it doesn't, if it's not a, if it's not something that he um, finds meaning in, whether it's personally or anything else, he doesn't want to do it. So showing him that you you don't have to follow that path. You can actually do something on your own. You can register your own business, um, but do it properly is my recommendation. If you're going to do it, keep all your receipts, follow the, you know, do your taxes, make sure you're learning the right um, approaches. My stepson um, is very self-motivated. Um, so for him, the guidance is around don't just focus on something you think is your pure passion because I think that can be sometimes a bit of a trap. This, um, I believe, a bit of a myth that your job should be your passion. You can have a job. It's a bit self-indulgent, I think. You want to care about what you're doing, but there's probably 70% of the population that don't have the privilege of doing that. Their job is a job to earn an income, to put food on the table. So care about what you're doing, be good at it, but don't expect that it's going to deliver all of your personal satisfaction. Yeah. And then there's the girl, um, she's only six, but um, I talk to her about feminism all the time and about equality and about what she can do, um, you know, that she shouldn't be limited by um, expectations around her of um, what she looks like or, or the way she behaves and she doesn't need to be quiet or, or good, that uh, she can just be her. So um, hopefully she will be a wonderful advocate for women. <laughs> Now, has she given you the mum, the feminism tanks full? Can you stop talking about feminism? Yeah, she probably will when she hits about 13. She's not quite there yet. She's still a bit of a sponge. Um, The boys uh, certainly do. (laughs) So, and and so that fascinates me about the, we've seen with equity issues, particularly in recently in sporting um, uh, uh, stars in Australia, but as they're retiring, they're saying, well, it's actually not the minority that needs to change. It's the majority that needs to get change. And in this case, one of the key roles around the feminism side is that we need to make sure that the imaginations of the young men is that there's no violence against women because it's not the women who are doing the violence, it's the men. So that's where we need to arrest it. We need to make sure that the men, young men, understand the power that comes from having an egalitarian, equitable basis that there's, you know, equal representation across genders, across um, uh, people's um, diversity in in cultures, diversity in interests. You know, diversity gives us such a superpower. That to me is a, it's fantastic that your daughter's getting that, but it's actually the boys need to have their imaginations absolutely tweaked that they're going to miss out on something if we don't have that diversity and we don't have inclusion. Well, I think it's about learnt. 
some of that is learned behaviour. And I think when you have an example in front of you of um, parents who do have um, equitable relationship and, you know, a role model, you know, my um, stepson comes to me all the time for all his business related, you know, he's quite a little entrepreneur and he's always asking me for advice and he comes to me versus his dad or his mum to ask those questions. So, uh, I think it's about example, uh, and I think it's just about constantly having the conversation, even if it's an uncomfortable conversation. Well, uncomfortable. Designers are professionals at being confident while being uncomfortable. And the more that designers understand that that's their role, because you can't solve future problems if you're not prepared to walk into an uncomfortable future, understand, have empathy, solve them, so that then the f- people who come into the future go, this feels much more graceful, but there's been a designer who's solved that that initial problem, and it probably wasn't easy to get there. It probably was a a dilemma. And I I see so many designers who don't realise the angst that they feel is actually part of the professional life that they have. If you were a, um, a search and rescue person, you'd actually have psychological counselling because the things that you're coming across are difficult and challenging. Designers are also involved in that. And we, we need to focus on the mental health because not everything that designers do is easy, it's challenging, and it's important that we have empathy and an understanding of each other and our own mental health in there. So, Amber, we've travelled a fair way here from going from where you started, the 10-year anniversary, the, uh, the Design for Good project that you've got, but I'm sure that we've missed out on a few things. So before we end, there's two questions that I go do for everybody. One is I ask, what haven't we covered so that we make sure that we've included it? And the other one is, who's inspiring you at the moment? And it can be from anywhere. Okay, so help me out. Have we missed anything? Because I'd hate to leave a conversation and have something that was needed to be said and wasn't. Uh, I think probably the one thing... I think it's important to raise is is mentoring. As you know, I've been a real advocate in the industry um, over the last 10 years. I would really encourage um, the listeners to be that, be a champion of uh, mentor someone, one person a year, two person a year, um, you know, put it on your LinkedIn profile that you're open to mentoring. Like I have the conversation Say yes to having students in. Um, make sure that you're, you know, part of our design for good. One of the pillars is education, and that's something that we uh, are really passionate about. And we take on paid interns all the time, not because we need to, but because we think it's an important part of their development. So, so mentoring is is definitely something I think we want to raise the profile of. Mm. And mentoring is it's interesting. I've done a lot of it over the last twenty odd years, and what I found interesting is that there are some people you mentor for a month or two, and there's other people that I have as mentees for more than a decade. Yeah. And there's no real pattern to it. It's actually the fact that you're open to go and give some of your attention, give some of your understanding experience to a person who's got some questions. I, I find I learn a lot about myself when I go do mentoring as well. And uh, and it's almost like there's a resolution of things that, you know, yeah, well, I've done that for a while. Why did I do that? So you often don't get to understand why until you're explaining to somebody else 
this it's is reflective. how this thing works. And uh, yeah, great reflection in there. I think that's pretty good uh, to reflect on that there. Now, who's inspiring you? I've got to go give you my most inspirational person at the moment, and I know anybody who listens to this series is going to go, he's going on about Naomi Osaka. Now, Naomi Osaka to me is possibly one of the most inspiring people because she understood the negative sides of some of the things that she was being asked to do. And she had the courage to say, this might be of benefit to you, but it's actually harming me. And that is such great self-awareness. Such a mirror to the, uh, such a mirror to society, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it's like fantastic. You know, she could have done the, I'll just do it as a financial thing. $15,000 per match for her wouldn't have been a problem. You know, if you go through, calculate it out. Yeah. Slam, it would have been like a 10% cost to her, but it wasn't, it was actually about the principal side. You're asking me to do something which is damaging me and it's a mild benefit to you. I'm not doing it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so inspiring. How about for you? What's inspiring you at the moment? Uh, look, there's two things. Um, in Creative Women's Circle, we recently had some speakers, um, two Mel- Melbourne sisters, um, African born. They run a business called Collective Closets and they're the, these independent businesses, especially in a difficult time right now. So they're a, a fashion label, amazing work. But the story that they bring of just having a go, creating something beautiful, changing the landscape of what um, fashion is and who and who that fashion's for, um, they're the sorts of conversations I find really inspiring, that they're having a go in what is, you know, typically a very privileged white um, economy at the moment in fashion. Um, and, you know, they're speaking to different audience. They're celebrating diversity. Their design is exceptional. Um, I'm really inspired by people like that, collective closets. Um, the other, just quickly, is I read Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, um, and I wasn't expecting much, to be honest. So I wouldn't say I've ever been much of a Matthew McConaughey um, fan or, or advocate, but I really enjoyed the narrative of the book, which was very much about um, just stick to your guns, do what you do well, celebrate that, know when to pivot, know when to change. If you're going to do it, don't half-ass it, do it properly. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, the the green lights name came from this premise, which I've actually started to adopt in my own language is know when those moments when you are, um, know when to honor the moments where something is going well and is allowing you to move forward into something else. That, that accelerator point, that green light moment, stop and kind of go, you know what? That was a green light moment. Well done. Mm. Acknowledge it. Uh, really good book. Really interesting story. Really interesting background. Not born into privilege. Yeah, um, and I find I find it's quite often you see people who are they've understood that their the pigeonholing that they were done with their career in, mm-hmm. in the film industry, and you know that happens to all actors that they get put on a particular path that you'll be useful for this. That they have to work out, are they prepared to sit in that? And musicians have the same thing. That yeah. an A&R manager will say, we think you're right for this tone. 
And they've got to accept that's basically what they're going to do. And we, you know, this week we had Charlie Watts died. Everyone talks about Charlie Watts as being a drummer. I think we also found out that he was a, a graphic designer as well. But as a drummer, he was a jazz drummer, not a rock and roll drummer. And it was actually, yeah, Charlie had worked out my job at the Rolling Stones is that I'm in a rock and roll band. But in my core, it was actually that I like jazz. And I suppose that's where he decided that, I'll accept that longitudinal path, which is going to do me very well as being the drummer for the Rolling Stones. But in my spirit and my core, I know I'm a jazz person. I, there are other values, other dimensions to me. It sounds like that's what Matthew McConaughey has here, an understanding of this is the job that I have versus the person that I am. This is the craft. And then, yeah, he reached a certain point in his career. And I, I think what I liked about him is he, he sort of called the arrogance of the industry and we see that in design, you know, all the time and in all sorts of industry around it has to, you know, it goes back to that piece around um, your job has to be your passion. He's like, during the rom-coms, he respected and, and, and valued that that gave him an exceptionally high income and he should be grateful and he felt grateful. And then he got to a point in his career where he didn't need that anymore and he chose, you know, to sort of to stop working for two years and, and to pivot, but he, he that was a privilege, and he acknowledged that that was a privilege to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, it was really some really insightful um, lessons. It was quite amusing too. Yeah, and I think you know, for a lot of people in the creative industries, that they don't realise you're not selling out by turning around and saying, "I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got a particular role that I have, and I that's that's why I get kept very well." Mm. But I think it's also important to understand how you express yourself and sometimes you can damage a brief because you're trying to express yourself too much. It's yeah, you know, it's not your it's commercial work. I say this all the time to young designers. This is a commercial industry. You are not designing for you. If you want to do that, go and become an artist because this is not the space for you. Can I give you a big hug? Because <laughs> that that line is just so important. The idea that there's a difference between art. Art is creativity with no commercial imperative. Self-expression, yeah. Design is you're being asked to look at somebody's circumstance and they have... Solve a problem. And they need you to solve the problem and most likely that problem is going to be for their leverage and that's either for political leverage, economic leverage, change, societal change. But it's not going to be about you. And... Unfortunately, as they're going through, uh, as young designers go through university, they get too much art training and not enough commercial leverage training. So I think that's such an important message to be there. Amber, I've loved our conversation. We're going to bring it to a close. Thank you Thank so you. much for sharing your mind with me as we did a spotlight on the better future. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here.